Today's podcast is brought to you by newspapers.com, the ultimate destination for exploring the mysteries of the past. If you're fascinated by true crime, get ready to dive into the stories that made headlines. Newspapers.com offers a billion pages of historical newspapers from the U.S. and beyond, and you can search the entire collection in seconds. Their vast newspaper collection is a goldmine for eyewitness accounts, crime scene photos, news reports, and more. Whether you're interested in famous crimes or long-forgotten cases, Newspapers.com gives you a front-row seat to more than 300 years of history. For our listeners, Newspapers.com has a special offer. Use the code CUPOFMURDER for an exclusive 20% discount on your subscription. That's promo code CUPOFMURDER at Newspapers.com. Sign up today and start unraveling the true crime mysteries that keep you up at night. Hey guys, I have a podcast that I think you'll really enjoy. Proof, the investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here is releasing its highly anticipated second season where they investigate the murder of 18-year-old Renee Ramos. The first season, which if you haven't listened to yet, you totally should, saw the release of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend, Brian Bowling. And thanks to evidence unearthed by proof, on December 8th, 2022, both Daryl Lee Clark and Kane Joshua Story were finally freed after 25 years behind bars. With that same investigative drive, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, and this time, They are on the streets of Manteca, California, to find out who really killed Rene Ramos. In proof, murder at the warehouse, you hear how, on June 5th, 2000, Rene's body was found buried beneath a pile of debris inside a new Home Depot building. And how, despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, her boyfriend, 18-year-old Jake Silva, and 33-year-old Ty Lopez, were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a... Weird homicide. Scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird morning. Cup of murder. Some cases are so complex, it's difficult to give them their due diligence. On July 9th, 1987, a young girl was born, and when she was just 20 years old, she would be thrust into a complicated story that, to this day, has many people scratching their heads and wondering was she the victim of an anti American smear campaign, or was she a cold blooded killer? So if you like your coffee hot, but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Amanda Knox, born July 9th, 1987, was raised in Seattle, Washington by her mother, Etta, a math teacher, and father, Kurt, a vice president of finance at a Macy's. The pair divorced when she was very young, with Etta remarrying and Amanda welcoming a new stepfather, Chris, into her life. When she was just 15 years old, Amanda traveled to Italy for the first time and immediately felt a connection with the country, especially after reading the book Under the Tuscan Sun, which is why after graduating from prep school in 2005, heading off to the University of Washington to study linguistics and saving every penny she could from a part-time job, Amanda chose to complete an academic year abroad in the country she fell in love with. Amanda was over the moon, but her stepfather had his reservations. 
He felt as though she was too naive to be so far away from home. But in the end, she was an adult and the decision was hers. Amanda moved into a four-bedroom ground-floor apartment in Perugia with three other women around her age in September of 2007, women who, despite moving in together, had never met nor really spoken before. One of these women was a girl named Meredith Kircher, a British exchange student, while the other two were, slightly older, Italian girls training to be lawyers. To make some extra money, Amanda started working part-time at a bar called Le Chic, owned by a Congolese man named Dia Patrick Lumumba, a job she told her flatmates that she planned on quitting because Patrick was not paying her, a fact that the man would later deny. In the basement-level apartment of the house that they were staying in lived two boys whom Meredith and Amanda liked spending time with, one of which, Giacomo Salenzi, liked spending time in their apartment listening to music. Around mid-October, after a night out that brought them home around 2 a.m., Amanda, Meredith, and Giacomo met an acquaintance of the Italians named Rudy Gied. Rudy joined the group, asking about Amanda at some point in the evening, and the new friends spent the night in the Italians' downstairs apartment, something they did once or twice, but never allowing the new friends into their own apartment. In late October, Meredith and Giacomo became romantically involved after a night out with friends, including Amanda. And five days later, Amanda herself met a man named Raffaele Solicito while she and Meredith were at a concert a man she began spending a lot of time with and whose apartment was just a five-minute walk away from her own. Things seemed to be going well for Amanda. She got along with her new roommate, met a new guy, and was establishing a friend group in a place that she always dreamed of living as a child, a dream that was about to turn into a terrible nightmare. November 1st of 2007 was a holiday. The Italians living in the house were away, and it's believed that Meredith went to some friend's house to watch a movie before returning to her empty apartment around 9 p.m. Around midday on November 2nd, Amanda tried to call Meredith but got no answer, which for those who knew Meredith was a little strange. So Amanda called Philomena, one of her two other roommates, and told her that she was worried about Meredith because, as she explained in a mixture of Italian and English, she had gone to their apartment that morning and noticed the front door was open, found bloodstains, including a bloody footprint, in their bathroom, and Meredith's bedroom door was locked. She and Raffaele went back to the apartment to try and locate Meredith, unsuccessfully trying to break down her door before Amanda finally called her mother at 2.47 p.m., who told her to call police. Raffaele called the Carabinieri, one of Italy's national police forces, and got them on the line four minutes after Amanda called her mother. On the recording, he told police that there was a break-in, that nothing was taken, but that one of the residents' doors was locked. There was blood, and she was not answering her phone. Police arrived, and Philomena took over, explaining the situation to the police in Italian. When they found out that Meredith's English phone, which had been handed in because of Amanda's calls, had been dumped, Philomena demanded that the policemen open up Meredith's door by any means necessary. Unfortunately, the officers didn't think the circumstances warranted damaging private property, so a friend of Philomena's kicked the door in. What they found was Meredith Kircher's body lying on the floor, having been brutally stabbed to death. Her cause of death was exsanguination due to neck wounds. When news of the murder spread, the city of Perugia went wild. It was the first murder to take place in the city in 20 years. Amanda Knox, just 20 years old, was, of course, brought in for questioning in regards to Meredith's murder. 
I mean, it made sense. The girls were roommates and friends, and Amanda was the one who discovered the alleged break-in that led to her body's discovery. Not to mention the fact that it took her mother to convince her to call police hours after the crime scene had been discovered. But something happened during those interrogations, the conduct of which is still a matter of dispute. And Amanda implicated not only herself in Meredith's murder, but her employer, Patrick Lamumba, and led to their arrest and the arrest of Raffaele Solicito. According to Amanda's statements, statements she made with no legal counsel, she received a text from her boss on November 1st saying that her shift had been canceled for that night. So with a cleared up schedule, she went to Raffaele's apartment to stay the night and went back to her apartment the next morning and discovered the break-in. A story that, according to Amanda, she maintained for hours even though the police did not believe her. Amanda would later state that the first detective who responded to the scene, a woman named Monica Napoleoni, was hostile to her from the very beginning, leading many to wonder what really happened behind the closed doors of an interrogation. Monica Napoleoni, who, after her partner dropped out of the investigation, feeling the arrests were premature, was left in charge of a major investigation for the very first time in her career. If Amanda is to be believed, she was, according to a later testimony, manipulated by the Italian police, saying, quote, They said they were convinced that I was protecting someone. They were saying, Who is it? Who is it? They were saying, Here's the message on your telephone. You wanted to meet up with him. You are a stupid liar. And claiming that a female officer would hit her to try and make her remember. Over the course of five days, she was threatened, abused, and denied access to food, water, a bathroom, an interpreter, and a lawyer. At least, that's what her story was. Because according to the police, everything about her interrogation was above board, and she was simply interviewed, quote, firmly but politely, at which time she said that she was in the home when Meredith was killed, and that she thought Patrick Lumumba was the killer. She signed a confession and the case, as far as police were concerned, was solved. But there was a problem. Patrick had been serving customers all night long, and those customers gave him an alibi for the night that Meredith was killed. So shortly after his arrest, he was released from police custody. Then, two weeks later, the bloodstained fingerprints found under Meredith's body were matched to a new suspect, a man who fled to Germany upon the body's discovery, Rudy Gidd, the acquaintance who sometimes hung out with Amanda and Meredith. He was extradited back to Italy and placed under arrest with Amanda and Raffaele, at which point he admitted to being at the murder scene, but said that he was not involved in her murder, nor were Amanda and Raffaele. Things were getting muddied and no one quite knew who to believe, but that didn't mean the media wasn't going to take sides. Almost immediately, both Italian and worldwide media began painting Amanda in a harsh light, so much so that giving her a fair, unbiased trial seemed impossible. Regardless, they persisted, and as leaks from the prosecution began to trickle out into the public, a number of so-called facts about Amanda's past started to alter the course of the investigation and the trial. Amanda and Raffaele were tried together, with Amanda having a separate concurrent trial by the same jury for the false accusations against Patrick Lumumba. For the murder trial, the still iffy police interrogation was deemed improper and inadmissible, but not for the separate trial, which, as I said, had the same exact jury. 
During the murder trial, Amanda was described by the prosecution as a sex-crazed drug addict who dragged her boyfriend into a rough sex game that ended with Meredith's murder, with the prosecution calling her a she-devil on the courtroom floor. They claimed that Amanda attacked Meredith, repeatedly banging her head against the wall and tried to strangle her. That all three, Amanda, Raffaele, and Rudy, removed her clothing and held her down while Rudy raped her. And when he was finished, Amanda cut Meredith with a knife before inflicting the final wound and staging the crime scene. They went on to say that when Amanda made her first call on November 2nd, it was to see if Meredith's phones had been found and that Raffaele tried to break into the bedroom that morning because the pair had left something behind when they killed the girl and locked the door behind them. That a homeless man placed Amanda and Raffaele near the apartment the night of the murder, and that fragments of Raffaele's DNA was found on Meredith's bra clasp. But the defense had arguments of their own. They told jurors the DNA was found on the clasp, but not on the fabric of the bra, which seems impossible if, as the prosecution stated, they were ripped off in a sex game gone wrong. It seemed more likely that the killer was Rudy Geed, whose DNA was all over the back of the bra. Rudy, whose story started by saying the couple were not even there the night that Meredith was murdered and then changed to implicate them, was tried in a special fast-track procedure. He did not testify, was not questioned about his statements, which had changed since his original confession, and was deemed an accomplice rather than the killer, which of course lent credibility to their assumptions about Amanda Knox's guilt and added weight to the prosecution's arguments during her trial. The defense, on the other hand, posited that Rudy was the sole killer, pointing out that none of the forensic evidence matched Amanda. Rudy was convicted of sexual assault and murder in October of 2008 and given 30 years imprisonment, though this was later reduced to 16 years. Amanda and Raffaele were found guilty on December 29, 2009. Amanda was sentenced to 26 years, while Raffaele was given 25. While Italy celebrated the conviction, calling it fair and just, the United States called it a massive miscarriage of justice. Feeling as though her attorneys were, by American standards, passive in the face of her complete character assassination, many saw her case as the prime example of anti-Americanism in Italy. Many spoke out against the pre-trial media and the DNA evidence used, which eventually led to the involvement of the Idaho Innocence Project in May of 2001, who, in accordance with their forensic results, said that the killer was Rudy Geed and that he acted alone. For years, people fought for a new trial for Amanda, and for years, she sat behind bars in an Italian prison, maintaining that she was innocent of her friend's murder. Eventually, after years of outrage, an appeal trial began in November of 2010. And this time, the DNA results were contested and independent experts noted numerous basic errors in gathering and analysis of evidence, concluding that, unlike what was presented in the original trial, there was no trace of Meredith's DNA found on the alleged murder weapon that police claimed was found in Raffaele's kitchen. Not only that, but the DNA on her bra clasp actually showed evidence of multiple males' DNA and had been lost on the floor for 47 days, meaning it was completely contaminated and should not have been used to prove Raffaele's guilt. On October 3, 2011, both Amanda Knox and Raffaele Solicito were found not guilty of murder. 
In an official statement given after the trial, the presiding judge said that Amanda had been confused by the lengthy interviews that took place in a language that she was still learning, that the forensic evidence did not support the idea that she and Raffaele were guilty, nor did it prove that they were even present the night that Meredith was killed. But the false accusation conviction stuck, and she was given a three-year sentence for the statements that she made against Patrick Lumumba which she had already served. She was immediately released and finally returned to her Seattle home with her family. But her legal process was still not over. In March of 2013, Amanda Knox and Raffaele Solicito were ordered back to Italy to stand trial for the murder of Meredith Kircher by the Italian Supreme Court because Italy's final court of appeals overturned the acquittals. Their trial began on September 30th, 2013, but because they lacked the appropriate space for the trial, it was moved to Florence, Italy. Amanda stayed in the United States while Raffaele attended the trial. At this trial, a new piece of evidence was brought forward called Evidence 36-I, a minuscule piece of material found on a kitchen knife that prosecutors believed was the murder weapon. While Meredith's DNA was not on the blade, Amanda's was on the handle. While the defense fought this strange new piece of evidence, saying all it did was prove that she used it to cook, the prosecution tried to use this small thread to prove Amanda's involvement in Meredith's brutal murder. In a decision that sent shockwaves across the world, Amanda and Raffaele were found guilty of murder after 12 hours of deliberation and voted to uphold their original sentence. This charge didn't stick for long, and by March of 2015, the Supreme Court overturned the 2014 conviction and made sure that the ruling was final. Meaning on March 27, 2015, after eight years of ups and downs, Amanda Knox and Raffaele Solicito were fully exonerated. Amanda finished her degree, became a freelance journalist, and wrote a memoir about her experiences. She works for the Innocence Project, speaks at a number of events and has been the subject of a documentary and to this day is the subject of much debate. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on July 10th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.